Hebrews chapter 1, and we'll read verses 1 to 4. Hebrews 1, verse 1. God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers in the prophets, in many portions and in many ways, in these last days has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. And he is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature, and upholds all things by the word of his power. When he had made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much better than the angels, as he has inherited a more excellent name than they. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you'll show us who Christ is from these words, that he is indeed true God and true man, and that he supersedes and is superior to all the prophets and even to the angels and to everyone else. We thank you for who he is. We pray, Lord, that you'll give us this kind of certitude in the person and nature of Christ, the, the work of Christ, and what he has accomplished on our behalf, that we might have stronger faith and confidence that what we believe is true. And it is the only means of knowing you, glorifying you, and having our own salvation. We ask that these would be clear to us. In the name of Christ, amen. In the book of Hebrews, we find that there are many, many exhortations. Many exhortations. There are words of encouragement, and there are many admonishments. There are many words that are hopeful and caring and merciful towards us, but also there are many words in the book that are warnings to us, admonitions, warning us not to reject the true faith. Now, if you were to ask, or be asked the question, how would you encourage somebody in affliction? How would you encourage somebody even under persecution? What would your answer be? How would you do so? I'm sure many of us, we would look for practical ways to say words of encouragement to them and even practice deeds of encouragement, giving them something, helping them, giving them a helping hand, helping them to manage through their affliction and even through their persecution. But how many of us would actually preach the gospel to the people under affliction and even under persecution and even under severe persecution and say to them, you better not turn away from Christ because if you do turn away from Christ, the only thing that awaits you is eternal judgment. Would we ever do that? Well, the Bible does that, and specifically the book of Hebrews does that very thing. It warns us not to turn away from the true gospel of Christ. Christ is the only means of salvation, and what we profess with our mouth, we ought to practice, and we ought to practice this until the very end. We should never turn away to the right or to the left from Christ. We must look in the face of Christ at all times and endure whatever we are experiencing until the very end. I submit to you that that's what's in here in the book of Hebrews. A couple of examples of what I mean by the people, the Hebrew people, these professing Christians who are now having doubts about what they're believing because of afflictions in their life and even persecutions in their life, they are wandering and wondering whether what they have initially believed is actually true. Let's see that, for example, in Hebrews chapter 6. Hebrews chapter 6 and verse 9. Hebrews 6, 9. But, beloved, we are convinced of better things concerning you and things that accompany salvation, though we are speaking in this way. For God is not unjust to forget your work and the love which you have shown toward his name in having ministered and in still ministering to the saints. We see in verse 10 that they are being commended because they were ministering and they kept ministering to the saints. There were saints in need, and those saints in need needed the help of the other saints, and so they are commended for it. They are living a life of affliction and of need. Look at also Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 32. Hebrews 10 but remember the former days when after being enlightened you endured a great conflict of sufferings partly by being made a public spectacle through reproaches and tribulations and partly by becoming sharers with those who were so treated 
for you showed sympathy to the prisoners and accepted joyfully the seizure of your property, knowing that you have for yourselves a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what was promised. For yet in a very little while, he who is coming will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back to destruction, but of those who have faith to the preserving of the soul. Clearly, he says in verses 32 and 33 that they endured great conflict of sufferings. Great conflict of sufferings. They're, they were reproached and there were tribulations that were heaped upon them. They sustained their faith, maintained their faith, and helped to sustain the faith of other people who were experiencing these same afflictions. Then at the end, he says, in 37 to 39, he says, do not shrink back. And if somebody does shrink back in the midst of conflicts, in the midst of afflictions, in the midst of persecutions, it says in verse 38, my soul has no pleasure in him. We ought not to shrink back when that happens. And finally is Hebrews 10, Hebrews 10, 26, the same chapter and verse 26. For if we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a certain terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of a fire which will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much severe punishment do you think he will deserve who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has insulted the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. The apostle there clearly teaches us from verses 26 to 31 that once we receive the knowledge of the truth, once we have embraced it, once we have said we believe in Christ and the gospel of Christ, we ought never to walk away from that no matter what is happening all around us, we ought never to walk away from that because there's only a certain terrifying expectation of judgment that awaits. Because we have insulted the Spirit of grace and we have trampled upon the Son of God, the blood of the Son of God. Therefore, it would be a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. These are the exhortations we have throughout this letter written to the Hebrew people these Hebrew Christians or Jewish Christians, people who have embraced the, the gospel of Christ, however, they have had some doubts. Some people have infiltrated their midst. Some people have threatened them. Some people have threatened to persecute them. And some people have even persecuted them and seized their property. This is the kind of dilemma these Hebrew Christians are, are experiencing. Yet in the midst of this experience, the apostle tells them, stand firm endure until the end. Be encouraged. Know what awaits you. Know what gospel of Christ and the benefits of that gospel of Christ await you, not in this life, but in the life to come. A life to come that is imperishable. A life to come that will not fade away. That should be our hope. Not whatever is in this world, but in the world to come. In order to ensure that they maintain the faith, he will spend literally... 12 chapters, 12 chapters on beliefs, 12 chapters on the theoretical, 12 chapters on the theological, 12 chapters on what we ought to know fixed in our minds as being true. And then in chapter 13, he will have a few exhortations about how we sh should live in light of this truth. So our journey through this letter will be many many implications, many implications of what we ought to know and what we ought to believe and cling on to that body of knowledge until the end. Because if we have the wrong body of knowledge, then we don't have the right salvation. We need to have the correct, truthful body of knowledge for our own soul's salvation.
So let's cling on to it during our study of the book of Hebrews and in, in that way until the very end, in fact, of our life. Hebrews 1, verses 1 to 4. We read verses 1 to 4, although verse 4 is a bit of a transitionary verse that transitions us to the rest of the chapter where he exalts Christ above angels. Above angels. In verses 1 to 3, or the first part of verse 4 as well, he is going to compare Christ to the prophets of the Old Testament. And that will be our focus now. Notice with me in verse 1. God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. It was God who spoke to the prophets. He spoke in the prophets and actually to the fathers. He spoke by means of the prophets to the ancestors of the people. He spoke in the past and he spoke long ago. But in this day and age, he has spoken to us by his son or in his son, Christ, the son of God. There is a, a clear contrast here between the prophets and the son. Notice what he says about the prophets. The prophets, they spoke to the fathers. They spoke to the ancestors. Christ, he speaks to us in these last days. That is, first in the first century, to the apostles and all of those others who experienced his ministry in the first century. And then the completed work of Christ is written here for our benefit in all ages to come, in these last days. This is the contrast. But with this contrast, we have to keep in mind a truth that is often overlooked. That is, it was God. It was God who spoke in the prophets, and it was God who spoke in His Son. We need to keep this in mind because when we read the prophets of the Old Testament, from Genesis to Malachi, Moses and the rest of the Old Testament, when we read them, sometimes we have this thinking in our minds, and which is embodied and even made official in many denominations, that the Old Testament is not to be considered the Word of God. God did not speak in the prophets, or He spoke partially in the prophets, or He spoke partially in terms of His own words, and the prophets invented their own ideas and their own words. They mixed and mingled God's words with their words, and it's up to us to figure out that what part is God's and what part is the man or the prophet's words. Or if we cannot figure it out, just forget it altogether and let's just go with the New Testament. This mentality, this theology is everywhere. It's even within Christianity. It is in many places. But we cannot hold to that because this text tells us and many other texts that it was God who spoke in the prophets. Whatever the prophets wrote from Genesis to Malachi, it was God who guided them by the Holy Spirit to write in the prophets. Jesus believed this, for he says in Matthew 5, 17 to 20, that not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass away from the law until all is accomplished. Until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass away from the law until all is accomplished. Jesus said that about the Old Testament. It has its place. It has its purpose. And in fact, the Apostle Peter says in 2 Peter chapter 1 about the Old Testament. He says, Know this first of all, 2 Peter chapter 1 verse 20. Know this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. Men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. 1 Peter 1.11, 1 Peter 1.11, the prophets of the Old Testament were seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. The Spirit of Christ was in the prophets of the Old Testament, and the prophets of the Old Testament were preaching Christ. So there is no contradiction between the prophets and the Son. It was God, and by means of the power of the Holy Spirit, moving the prophets to write the words of the Old Testament. That should be very clear from these words. 
the point of this contrast, in other words, is not that God did not speak in the Old Testament, now he is speaking now. We ought to reject the Old Testament, but only accept the New Testament. The point of this passage is none of those things. The point of the passage is to confirm that God did indeed speak in the prophets, and he has now spoken in his Son. And now the contrast. So what is the contrast? They were prophets, they were men, right? But here we have the Son of God who will be explained in verse, verses 3 and 4, his superiority above the prophets. The prophets were men. Yes, they were holy men. Yes, they were guided by the Holy Spirit of God to write their words. However, they were men. They did not come from heaven. The Son of God came from heaven. And the Son is the Son of the Father from all eternity past. So he has a unique nature, he has a unique position, and he has a unique ministry. The ministry of the prophets, notice, here we have another point of contrast, was in many portions and in many ways. Many portions and in many ways. From the time of Adam, 4,000 B.C., until the time of Christ, there were 4,000 years. About 3,600 of those years were years when prophets preached both orally and they also uh, wrote in books, literarily they wrote their words in both ways. These prophets existed for 3,600 years. So in that sense, it was in many portions. It happened over a long, spirit, uh, long uh, pa uh, span of time, a long period. The prophets wrote their words. Not only that, but the prophets, they spoke in many ways. The prophets, they spoke in many ways. In fact, in Numbers chapter 12, God informs the people, especially Miriam and Aaron. He informs them that Moses is unique among the rest of the prophets because, generally speaking, God reveals his word to the prophets in dreams, in visions, in, in many uh, figurative ways. He makes it known to them in riddles, in dark sayings. He makes known his words to the prophets in a, in a very uh, wide variety of means. This is what Hebrews 1 says, in many ways, that God revealed his word to them. However, in contrast with the Son of God, who is superior to the prophets, God, in one period of ministry, in a three and a half period of ministry, during Jesus' public ministry, God inundated the world with truth. Every moment of every day, the, every time Jesus was around, during his public ministry, for three and a half years, God inundated the world with the presence of Christ, with the truth of Christ, with the words of Christ, with his model, his example, every day in the Son of God. This is different. It was not in many portions over a long period of time, and it was not in many ways. The Father spoke directly to the Son, and then the Son gave his words, delivered the words of the Father to the people. It was the words of the Father through the Son to the people. And aside from parables, when God spoke to the people, through the Son, he usually spoke in plain and clear language. Yes, there are parables, and there are several, or many parables, but many times he spoke clearly and plainly to the people so that they cannot say, well, that was enigmatic. What did you mean by that? And everything you're saying is so dark and, and so full of riddles that we can't figure it out. Everything you're saying is a parable. No. Everything he said was not a parable, and he did not say everything in a dark way. Notice, for example, in John chapter 10. John 10, did Jesus tell the people, and even his enemies, his most fierce antagonists, did he tell them plainly who he was and what he came to do? Yes. John chapter 10, John 10, verse 24. The Jews, therefore gathered around him and were saying to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The words 
the, the works that I do in my Father's name, these bear witness of me. But you do not believe because you are not of my sheep. They say to Jesus, they accuse him of not telling them plainly if he is the Christ. But Jesus' answer in verse 25 is, I told you and you do not believe. I told you plainly. I told you clearly. I didn't preach to you in 100% parables. I did not explain to you in personal conversations, in riddles and in dark sayings and in visions and dreams. I did not do it that way. I told you clearly and obviously who I am. And you still won't believe. Another example of Jesus' clear and plain teaching is in Matthew 27. This relates to his ministry, relates to his ministry, what he came to do. Matthew 27, 62. Matthew 27, 62. Now on the next day, which is the, the one after the preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered together with Pilate and said, Sir, we remember that when he was still alive, that deceiver said, After three days, I am to rise again. Therefore, give orders for the grave to be made secure until the third day, lest the disciples come and steal him away and say to the people, He has risen from the dead. And the last deception will be worse than the first. Then Pilate gives them a guard of soldiers. What we see here is that Jesus' enemies, the chief priests and the Pharisees, they knew that Jesus clearly preached his death and resurrection. They knew that. He did not hide it from them. He openly told them that he was going to die and rise again and that they needed to believe in him, who he is and what he came to do. It is in these ways that there is a contrast between the prophets and the Son. The Son of God came. He came with finality. He came with clarity. He came with inundation of the truth. He came and told everybody exactly who he was, what he came to accomplish. The prophets of the Old Testament, they looked forward to this happening. They preached and prophesied of the coming of Christ. But it was the apostles, the disciples of the first century, who were eyewitnesses of his majesty, who heard him preach, who saw him perform miracles, these are the ones who then become the announcers of the accomplishment of everything Christ came to do, of everything that the prophets preached now is fulfilled, and we see it right here before our very eyes. Not in a dark corner, not in a dark and dingy place. No, Jesus did these things publicly. He said these things publicly with many witnesses, so that there was nobody able to say with any justification, well, you didn't make it clear to me. Well, I didn't know the way. I didn't know what you meant when you said the prophet said this or that. I didn't understand. I didn't know. Nobody on a legitimate basis could say, Jesus is not the way. No, Jesus is the way, and he is the only way of salvation. Now, verse 2. The Apostle tells us, in these last days, he has spoken to us in his Son. The last days. In Hebrews 1-2, clearly he's saying that the last days begin with the first coming of Christ. The last days begin with the first coming of Christ. It says, in these last days, has spoken to us in his Son. In the Bible, the last days encompass the period between the first and the second comings of Christ. It sounds to us, when we first hear and read this word, last days, we think, oh no, it must be in the next year, or in the next few months, or in the next few weeks, that the last days are upon us, and suddenly everything is going to end. Now, the end will come, and it will come unexpectedly to the unbelieving world, but it won't come unexpectedly to us, because we are looking forward to it in anticipation and we seek to live a godly life and look in the face of Christ in all things. But to the unbelieving world, the last days is going to come suddenly. But in terms of the time frame, it is between the first coming of Christ and the second coming of Christ. How do we know that that is the case? Our first example is our own text, right here in Hebrews 1, 
where he says, In these last days he has spoken to us in his Son. Another place, Hebrews 9.26. Hebrews 9.26. Otherwise, he would have needed to suffer often since the foundation of the world. But now, once at the consummation of the ages, he has, manifested, he has been manifested to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. In this text, the consummation of the ages is the time that Jesus comes once and only once to make a sacrifice, the sacrifice of himself to put away sin. 1 Peter chapter 1, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 20. For he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but has appeared in these last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. The last times encompasses the coming of Christ and our belief in him. Second Peter, Second Peter chapter three. Second Peter chapter three, verse three. Know this first of all, that in the last days mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lust and saying, "Where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation." For when they maintain this, it escapes their notice that by the word of God the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and by water, through which the world at that time was destroyed, being flooded with water. But the present heavens and earth by his word are being reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. But do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow about His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, in which the heavens will pass away with the roar, and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat, and the earth and its works will be burned up. Since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, on account of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning and the elements will melt with intense heat? But according to His promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Peter again says in verse 3 that this is, it says, he says, that in the last days, mockers will come. The last days. The last days between the first and the second coming of Christ. In the meantime, people need to repent of sin and live a holy life and anticipate that day of God, the day of the Lord, when he will destroy this current heavens and earth with fire, with intense fire, intense heat. He will destroy everything we see. And he'll create a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, another confirmation that the last days are between the first and the second comings of Christ. Now, back to Hebrews 1 and verse 2. Hebrews 1, 2. In the meantime, who is Christ to us? Between the first and the second comings of Christ, how should we look at Christ? What should we consider about him? It says in verse 2, Whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. Two things here. The Father, God the Father, has appointed Christ the heir of all things. He is the inheritor of all things. He possesses all things. He owns all things. God the Father has appointed his one and only Son, to possess and inherit everything that we see, everything that we know, both visible and invisible, everything belongs to Him. If everything belongs to Him, then why should we be disillusioned and distracted by people who have a claim on the things of the world, 
who even have a threat or a claim to our life and say, we will put you to death if you do, do not recant. If you do not deny the faith, we will put you to death. That should not bother us because Christ is the inheritor of all things, because he is the Son of God, because he is the Son of Man, because he died on the cross, because he rose from the dead. God has appointed him to be the heir of all things. And all who are rightly related to him, all who are joined to him, all who know him by faith in his death and resurrection will participate and will enjoy that inheritance. That's the point of him saying that Christ is the heir of all things. He's the heir because all who are joined to him will have a taste and will have a benefit in that inheritance. This is Romans 8, Romans 8, 16. Romans 8, 16. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children... Heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, in order that we may also be glorified with him. We are heirs with Christ, fellow heirs with him, if indeed we suffer with him, in order that we may also be glorified with him. What Jesus owns, we will also own. So we must reject the world and embrace Christ. Whatever they say and whatever they threaten means nothing to us because it's all found in him. This also, this phrase reminds us, if God has appointed Christ the heir of all things, why did he not appoint us the heir of all things? Why did he not appoint us first the heir of all things? And why is it related to Christ? Because we are ephemeral because we are transient, because we are weak, because we are humans, we are created beings, we are not the Son of God. We are also sinful, we are perverse, we are naturally born blind, dark. We do not love God naturally. It takes God to invade our hearts and to pour out His grace upon our hearts to change us and to make us a new creature in Christ. That's why this reminds us of our own standing before God apart from Christ, and that we can benefit only if we are joined to Him, only if we know Him by faith. Another reason is given in verse 2, through whom also He made the world. Through Christ, the Father made the world. Christ is the creator of all things. Notice in verse 8, Verse 8, Hebrews 1, 8. This is God the Father speaking to the Son. And notice what the Father says about the Son and about His creation of the world. Hebrews 1, 8. But of the Son, He says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever, and the righteous scepter is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness above your companions. And you, Lord... Remember, this is the Father calling the Son Lord. You, Lord, in the beginning laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the works of your hands. They will perish, but you remain, and they all will become old as a garment, and as a mantle you will roll them up. As a garment they will also be changed. But you are the same, and your years will not come to an end. The Father says and acknowledges that the Son is the one who laid the foundation of the earth. He created the heavens. He's the one that will remain even though everything else will perish. We read that in 2 Peter 3. Everything else will perish, but Christ will remain the same forever and ever. He is the creator of the world. Christ, even according to John chapter 1, is the creator of the world. There is nothing that he did not Create. John 1, verses 1 to 3. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being by Him, and apart from Him, nothing came into being that has come into being. Christ is the creator of the whole world, and if He is the creator of the whole world and everything in the world, 
Christ is not one of the created beings. He's not one of the created beings, yet we are. Christ is uncreated. Christ is eternal, but we are created and we are temporal. We are mortal and Christ is immortal and God is immortal. There is no death that exists in God. God existed from eternity past and he exists to eternity future. Therefore, when it says that Christ is the creator of all things, we cannot have any kind of belief that demotes Christ from that high and exalted position. Any belief, any theology, any denomination, wherever we read it, whoever says it, who desires or even dares to demote Christ from his high position, he is teaching something that is contrary to the Bible and is undermining the gospel of Christ because he has undermined the identity of Christ. We cannot undermine the identity of Christ and say we worship the true God. Christ is the creator of everything. Not the creator of most things, not the creator of every other thing, but the creator of all things. If he is the creator of all things, he is not one of the things created. Verse 3. Not only is he the heir and the creator, verse 3, he is the exact and only true representative of God. Verse 3. He is the radiance of his glory, meaning Christ is the radiance of God the Father's glory and the exact representation of his nature, the Father's nature. He says there that if we want to know who Christ was and is, he is the radiance of the Father's glory. All of the brilliance and radiance of the Father. The Bible describes Father dwelling in glory. Everything we want to know about the Father, both His glory and all that that glory represents, all of the infinite virtues that reside in God, all that is there, His eternality, God's omniscience, God's omnipotence, God's omnipresence, God's love, God's mercy, God's grace, God's holiness, God's righteousness, God's justice. Whatever the attributes of God are, they are perfectly manifested in Christ. They are only perfectly manifested in Christ. Christ came to manifest them, to display all of those virtues, all of those attributes of God into the world, to our world so that we might see who God is. We know that God is invisible. God is unseen. Hebrews eleven twenty seven says, seeing him who is unseen, as seeing him. Moses believed in a God, though he did not see that God. God is invisible. Yet, if we want to know who he is, we want to know what he's like, it will be perfectly and imminently manifested in Christ and Christ alone only in Christ we remember that many times during Jesus ministry Jesus made this fact known many times he made this fact known and his apostles understood this fact to see several examples let's turn to the book of John the book of John John chapter 1 John chapter 1 verses 14 to 18 and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness of him and cried out, saying, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me has a higher rank than I, for he existed before me. For of his fullness we have all received and grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. No man has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. Glory from the Father, only begotten of the Father, verse 14, full of grace and truth. 
John the Baptist knew this and pointed everybody to him and said in verse 16, and uh, John the Apostle says, For of his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. We have benefited from this manifestation of the Son of God. Grace and truth were realized. Their full fulfillment of everything that the prophets preached was seen, realized, manifested in Christ. And no one has ever seen God, verse 18. No one has ever seen God. This means that the Hindus have not seen God. The Muslims have not seen God. Or any other religion that claims to have a vision of God, to see God, to have God speak to them and tell them what it is in the unseen world, what it is like in the unseen world, they're not telling us the truth. According to this passage, no man has seen God at any time. But the only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, He has explained Him. If we will see God, if we desire to see God at any time, we will only see Him in Christ. Only in Christ. Jesus says words similar to this. John 5, John 5, 37. And the Father who sent me, he has borne witness of me. You have neither heard his voice at any time, nor seen his form. John 6, 46. Not that any man has seen the Father, except the one who is from God. He has seen the Father. And John 14, John 14, verse 9. Jesus said to him, Have I been so long with you, and yet you have not come to know me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. How do you say, how do you say show us the Father? He who has seen me has seen the Father. If anyone is going to know the truth, about life and eternal life, if anybody is going to be forgiven of his sins, if anybody is going to be prepared to meet God in the world to come, is going to be prepared upon death to see God face to face, he has to deal with the person and work of Christ. If he does not embrace and not believe it wholeheartedly until the end, he does not know God. Christ came for the very purpose of manifesting in all of the perfections of the Father in a perfect way to all of us. He came for that purpose. That's why it says in Hebrews 1.3, He is the radiance of His glory, the exact representation of His nature. Only in Christ will we have the exactness and the radiance of God manifested to us. So, no compromise. We cannot say that Christianity is among the various religions of the world on the same level. And you can pick and choose whatever you like. We cannot say that there are pluralistic ways to salvation. We cannot say that because of multiculturalism that every culture and their beliefs are equal and valid. No. There is absolutism. There is finality. There is one way. And that way is found in Christ and in Christ alone. He continues in verse 3 by saying that Christ upholds all things by the word of his power. He upholds all things by the word of his power. Christ is not only the creator of the world, he is also the sustainer of the world. He is the sustainer. Everything that happens, the sun rising and setting, the rain falling, the clouds forming, the clouds dissipating, earthquakes, Everything that happens in this world happens because Christ is the sustainer of everything. Colossians 1, Colossians 1, 15. And he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created by him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. In him all things hold together. 
He's before all things, meaning He's eternal. He's the creator of all things, verse 16, and even invisible things, meaning angels. Angels and everything that is invisible, He is the creator. And he, they were created by Him and for Him, for His benefit. And verse 15, He is the image of the invisible God. That's what Hebrews 1 is saying. He is the exact representation of His nature. Christ is the exact representation of the nature of the Father. He is the image of the Father. And the firstborn of all creation means He's the heir of all things. Firstborn does not mean the first one created. In that passage, firstborn means the heir of all things. He's the heir of all creation, as Hebrews 1 tells us. Then lastly, Hebrews 1, verse 3. The last part of verse 3. Here we have more His humanity and the purpose of His ministry. Hebrews 1, 3. When He had made purification of sins, He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. When He had made purification of sins. How is it? that Christ made purification of sins? Did He come as an invisible being? Did He come as an angel, as an invisible creature? No. He came visibly. He came with a human nature. He came with the physical body. He came with a nature like ours, that is a nature susceptible to mortality, of pain, suffering, death. He came into this world and had a human body, just like you and I have a human body. That's why he says, when he had made purification of sins. He came and assumed a human body. He took upon a human body for the purpose of dying in that body. Not for his sins, because he's perfect, but for our sins if we believe in him. He came in a human body to die and to purify us, to purge us of all of our sins by his death, and resurrection for us, if we believe in Him. This will be explained in further passages in Hebrews. Example, Hebrews 2.14. 2.14. Since then the children share in flesh and blood, He Himself likewise also partook of the same, that through death He might render powerless Him who had the power of death, that is, the devil, and might deliver those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. For assuredly, he does not give help to angels, but he gives help to the descendant of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brethren in all things, that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For since he himself was tempted in that which he has suffered, he is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted." Because we have flesh and blood, because we have a human nature, Christ partook of a human nature so that He might die by His single, solitary sacrifice, one time in history, by that one sacrifice to make propitiation for the sins of the people, to propitiate for our sins, so that our sins might be forgiven. Though He was tempted, He did not succumb to temptation, therefore He is a perfect sacrifice. He was tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Hebrews 4.13. This is why he says, when he had made purification of sins. We have the divine nature of Christ, which is like the Father, exactly like the Father, and now we have the human nature of Christ, which is like our nature without sin. Completely pure of sin. But He had to die in order to redeem us from sin because that was the appointed sacrifice, the only appointed sacrifice acceptable to God to pay for our sins. 2 Corinthians 5.21 He made Him who knew no sin to become the sin offering on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. And lastly, in Hebrews 1, three. He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much better than the angels as he has inherited a more excellent name than they. 
When he sat down at the right hand of majesty on high, he did so, just as everything he did, in fulfillment of prophecy. He, our Psalm 110 is quoted in Hebrews throughout. And Psalm 110 says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Hebrews 1.3 is saying that that was accomplished. When Christ ascended, when he ascended into heaven, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. He sat down because his work was accomplished. He sat down because what he did in his first coming was complete. It was final. It, and it was beneficial for the sins of the people. It was done. Then he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. We know the majesty on high is God the Father. He sat down up there as the king of kings in a royal position. He sat down at the right hand of the Father, metaphorically speaking, because the Father is invisible, just as the Holy Spirit is invisible. And even Christ was invisible spirit before he took upon a human body. He has a divine nature and a human nature. The human nature is physical and tangible. But the invisible nature of God, therefore the right hand of the Father is, in, is metaphorically and spiritually meaning that he's in the place of authority. He is in the place of power and dominion. He has the rulership. He has the kingship over the whole universe. It's all being done by the power of Christ the Son. That's the sense in which he's at the right hand of the majesty on high. And as Psalm 110 says, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. That's what it says in 2 Peter chapter 3. Between the first coming and the second comings, we must acknowledge who Christ is, embrace him, be faithful to him until the end. In the face of mockery, in the face of our persecutors who say, where is the promise of his coming? We are faithful until the end when he comes to destroy this current heavens and earth, to burn it all up with intense heat. Then he will receive us into his kingdom and we will be with him forever. This is why he says he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high to ensure that that final event will occur. That final event is actually a complex of events, a series of events. When Jesus returns, everything else that has transpired throughout the world will come to its consummation. Everything will end according to the mighty will of Christ, the Son of God. That's why he tells us that he sat down at the right hand. That's why God appointed him to sit down at the right hand, that we might have confidence, we might have hope, and look forward to that day when Christ returns in great power to deliver us from the world and to enable us to enjoy all of the blessings, all of the manifestations that we have as a foretaste now of our inheritance, we will have them in the full in the future. This is known, this time between the first and second comings of Christ is known as the session of Christ. The session of Christ. He is there for this period of time in order to reign, to reign in us, and to reign in the world. Let's never be detracted, deflected, distracted from our focus on Christ. He only, he only is our Savior. He only is our Lord. He's the only one who came to pay for our sins. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Amen.